The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. Welcome to All Things Therapy. I'm your host, Lisa Tahir. I'm a licensed clinical social worker practicing as an intuitive psychotherapist. I'm certified in both EMDR and Reiki. I have offices in both New Orleans, Louisiana and Los Angeles, California. And you can find me online through my website, which is nolatherapy.com. It's like the abbreviation for New Orleans, Los Angeles, therapy.com. You can book sessions by phone, Skype, or FaceTime, or in person. And you can inquire about being a guest on this show as well, if you're interested. You can also find archived episodes of this show and subscribe weekly through YouTube, iTunes, or Google Play. Today's show, I am really especially honored to have my guest on today. Ms. Adina Oob from the Whitney Plantation will be with us momentarily. She is a historian and a guide at the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana, which is the first and only museum and memorial in the United States to slavery. It's home to the Wall of Honor, the Field of Angels, and these memorials commemorate the 107,000 children, women, and men that were enslaved in the state of Louisiana between 1719 and 1820. The Whitney Plantation itself is a site of memory and consciousness to pay homage to all the slaves on that plantation itself and to the slaves who lived in the southern United States. Welcome, Adina. I'm so pleased to have you on today. Hello, and I am very pleased to be with you guys today. Thank you. It's been seven months in the making since we met, so I'm glad we could finally right, right. our schedules. Definitely. So, this is definitely a pleasure. Thank you. Where do you want to start with our with our show today? Wherever. How about... Um, I just tell you guys how important it is for what I'm doing now. Um, yeah. Um, there is definitely a lack of education in that realm. Um, we are not really addressing that in our school systems. So I'm very pleased that I have the opportunity to be a part of such a 
such a, I don't even know the term to use um, right now. I'm at a loss for word. Educating. Yes, but such a great experience to be able to bring this to the masses. Uh, this this part of United States history, not just Southern history or slave history, but it's it's a piece of our American history going back to the Civil War. Right. Definitely. Definitely. And it's definitely very overlooked. So it's a pleasure to be bringing this to the masses. Great. Do you. So what is a good starting place for our listening audience? Whitney Plantation is about an hour outside of New Orleans in Wallace, Louisiana, correct? Yes. And my understanding from when you were my guide, that was it was established in the mid-18th century by a German immigrant. So I don't know yes. if it helps to just give a little background. Definitely, definitely. Um, around the early 1700s, uh, German immig- immigrants began to come into this particular region. Um, they were actually having a very hard time in Germany. A lot of famine and hunger was happening. And a gentleman by the name of John Law was hired by the West Indies Corporation to go into Germany and proposition these individuals to come to this region to populate the New World. And when these Germans began to come in, they had to sign these land grants. Uh, well, they had to sign this documentation to get these land grants. And the documentation was simply that they had to funnel all of their crops through the French market. Okay. They were targeted to populate the French, to, to pro- populate the French corners, the French market. And when, upon arriving, there was a lot of Native Americans in this mm-hmm. region. In Louisiana, and right. There was a lot of, right, and there was a lot of uprising um, at that point. And they began to kind of shift from the east bank of the St. John Parish to the west bank of St. John Parish. And that's where um, the Whitney is sitting and located today. Right. Okay. And so the German immigrant Ambrose Heidel. Heidel. Heidel is who founded the Whitney plantation as an indigo farm at first, correct? Before it was a sugar plantation? Correct. Correct. And then his son took it over. Correct. His son is going to come into reign in the early 1800s. Um, when his sons come in, when his sons come into reign is when they're going to have that shift in that region from indigo to sugarcane. Okay. There was an indigo infestation that began to kill the indigo crop, and they're going to try a lot of different crops in this region at that point. But the soil here is perfect for growing sugarcane. The moist sugarcane needs a lot of moisture. And the soil is perfect here for breathing that type of crop. Mm-hmm. When his sons um, shift to the sugar cane is when, oh, let's see, that's around early, early 1800s. This is when the, the numbers of enslaved individuals are going to start jumping in those okay. regions. When it's the indigo crop, the, it's in very small numbers. You have um, individuals enslaved. You also have indentured servitude going on on these indigo properties. Okay. When the shift is made to the sugarcane properties is where they're going to completely do away with indentured servitude and it's going to be strictly slave labor on these properties. So will you help educate me? And Because I did some research. The Civil War was going on from 1861 to 1865. 
Meanwhile, slavery, it sounds like, is, you know, it, like in full force in the South. Can you talk some about that? What was happening on the, on the Whitney Plantation and the Civil War going on as well? When the Civil War is taking place, um, the Whitney property itself is um, kind of up in ruins. There is the heir to that property died late 1860. And at that point, there's really no authority figure on that property. And you're going to have a lot of uh, different soldiers coming in and raiding things. You have the enslaved individuals there. They're pretty much um, tending the land to sustain themselves. Okay. And when the Civil War ends, the state is going to come in to the Whitney property today. And they're gonna, it's going to take them about two and a half years to even inventory that property to put it up for auction. The last heir, the last heir to the, to the, um, the last Heidel heir to the property did not designate an heir. So all of the wealth reverts back to the state of Louisiana. Oh, wow. Yes. And that's when the state is going to come in and they're going to inventory the property and they're going to put it up for auction. Okay. At that point, the individuals who are um, the rum distillers are going to come in and buy the property up. At that time, molasses was a byproduct of granulating sugar in that manner. Mm-hmm. And the molasses was being used to distill the rum. Mm. A, bunch of rum a bunch of rum distillers are going to come in wanting to buy the property. A gentleman named Bradish Johnson is going to be the one who actually purchases it as um, a business investment. And that's when he's going to change the property from the Habitat Heidel and name it the Whitney Plantation. After his grandson, I believe. Right. Yes. Right. Whitney was one of his grandchildren's names that he was very fond of. So he's the one who actually named the Whitney Plantation, Bradish Johnson. Okay. So when I came and did the tour with my my friends from Los Angeles, and you're our guide, so and you walked us through the different, you know, where the slaves lived and and such. So that was happening before this time, right? This is before Bradish Johnson is going to come in. Okay, what what has been so important for you in in working at the Whitney and being a historian and educating people about this history? For me, I think the most important thing that um, I would say happens out here, I am beginning to realize that a lot of individuals just don't know. They just don't know. A lot of people go off of the, the movies and, the, and, and television to get that knowledge, and the, that tends to be on one perspective, all, one, one, all the way to the left or all the way to the right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people just really, really are now opening up and seeking that knowledge as to what really happened. And I think it's a real treat to be able to fill that gap for people, because I think a lot of individuals who come through the Whitney Plantation today really just don't know. They really just don't know what really went on or why it really went on. And when you say, Adina, that, that you encounter people that really don't know what went on, do you mean the ins and outs of slavery and what it was about? What exactly do you mean by that? Definitely. That's exactly okay. what I mean. The, the, the day-to-day and the, the, I think a lot of people don't realize the economics 
of okay. slavery. Can you talk to us about that, the economics of slavery? Definitely. A lot of individuals um, have the take that slavery was confined to the South. Mm-hmm. And slavery was definitely a global institution. And by looking at it in an economic way, it's pretty much the only way you can really see that. Because even though it's, if a state may not have, I'm um, trying to think of an example, um, for instance, the sugar kettle, the yeah. kettles that are used, um, that were used in that process, those kettles, most of those kettles were manufactured in New Jersey and shipped down here. So okay. a lot of people look at slavery as being confined to the South simply by not looking at the sheer economics of it. Right. And it was definitely, definitely global. Um, when you look at a, corpor- a company like New York Life, they yeah. insured um, these individuals. So a lot of people don't see that side of it. I just went to an exhibit recently, um, and I've been studying this quite some time, but kind of took me by surprise. I just realized that there were actual slave clothing lines. Um, Brooks Brothers, the, um, the, the men's line of fine clothing. Yes. They were one of the first clothing manufacturers to have a slave clothing line. So a lot of people wow. just don't look at the economics of it. And I think and just, by looking at it that way is how you can see that it wasn't just confined to the South. Right, that it was a whole economy going on in our country right. at that time. Exactly, definitely. At the expense of of the slaves that were brought from Africa and the various regions. Um, I know particularly there were three regions of Africa where the slaves were brought to Louisiana specifically. Is that, if I'm remembering Right, from- we have narrowed down that West Africa is where most of the individuals who landed in Louisiana came from, from Senegal and Gambia, Senegambia, um, some from the Congo, but we have definitely narrowed it down that West Africa is where most of the enslaved individuals in this region, um, who landed in this region, is where they originated. Uh, we have also found that certain tribes in Africa were specifically targeted for their skills. The, uh, mm-hmm. the Mena tribe is known, as, the Mena and the Ibu tribe are known as gardeners and fishermen. Um, the Mandingo tribe was very, were known for their prestigious look and their great stature. And we now have realized that a lot of those areas or a lot of those tribes were targeted for those specific reasons that they were not really just going into the African shores, snatching anyone, whoever they were looking for individuals with certain skill sets. I think that makes it more insidious that they're taking individuals with specific skill sets. I was imagining today as I was researching just to to be going about your life and then you're taken, you know, and thrown on a ship and brought to horrendous conditions to live the rest of your life. I mean, it's just a crime is an understatement of what was happening. Definitely. Definitely. But we have definitely realized that. They were not just picking random people, that they were looking for certain skill sets. They were profiling back then. Right. Even. That is a great way to put it, definitely. Yeah. So once, can you tell us about once the, the slaves got 
to Whitney, what would happen for them? Because I know this this museum is about the slave perspective as opposed right. to a couple other plantations I've been to where they focus on the beautiful house and the guides are wearing period clothing. And, you know, so can you walk us through as if we were there with you today? And what are, what are we talking about? We want to talk about, about the, the slave the, experience the, once, once they got to uh, the Whitney plantation, what it might have been like gotcha. for them. When you're talking about early on, when you're talking about the Africans coming to a place like this, that would have been a great language barrier among mm. these people. Africa has never been an organized continent. So every tribe would have had their own language, their own religion. So even just among themselves, that wow. would have been a great language barrier. So when you think about being brought into this foreign area in shackles, um, and not understanding what they are trying to get across to you. And then even among yourselves, not really having a sense of camaraderie. Um, there were a lot of tribal wars in Africa and prisoners of wars were be t- would be taken. And so it's, it's a lot of individuals look at this as um, just one set of people or just one group of people. And These it wasn't. were individuals with their own right. These were individuals with their own lives, their own cultures, their own religion, their own way of living, even among themselves. Yes. So now here you are in this foreign in this foreign land. You have all of that to factor in, and now you're being taught a new language. Wow. Besides being taught this new language, you have to work from sunup until sundown doing grueling labor that you probably didn't really ever do before, Mm -hmm. then you're going to be stripped. You're not only being stripped of, you're not only being stripped of your, your, your family, um, your whole life, your whole existence of what you knew to be life. Now you're being stripped of your self-worth. Yes. Because you're being defiled. Things that you're being poked and prodded like a kind of like a product, a commodity. Right. Without any feelings or emotions or identity. Right. And you really have no sense of control over yourself anymore. You don't belong to yourself. You now belong. So all of this is going on. That process was actually named. It was called a seasoning process. Mm. The process from when they would take a slave from the time they got onto the property until the time they were, they, were, they were considered or called broken in if that seasoning process was complete. Depending on the resilience of that individual, that process could have lasted anywhere from a few days to maybe a few years. Wow. Depending on how much that, um, I'm trying to, the, the old roots, uh, Kunta Kinti is a great example of that seasoning process of them trying to break his spirit to where you won't want to fight back or you don't want to run away. You're just going to take it in and, okay, I'm here. This is what I have to do. And that okay. process was called, was called seasoning. Okay. And every slave that entered any one of these properties would have went through that process, that process of breaking their spirit so that they no longer want to fight or resist. Wow. And they use different methods. Like I know at Whitney, there is the slave pen, which for our listeners, it was just a solid steel, pretty small building. And when I went to the Whitney plantation, it was very hot. And they would pack 
the slaves in this iron cage and shut the door. And it was so hot with just a few of us. I can't even imagine just if your skin touches the walls right. that burns you. And, and these slaves were locked in there. So was that one of the ways to break their spirits? That definitely could have been a way to break their spirit. Um, one of the more um, well-known ways would be the changing of the name. Uh, okay. That's where that came in a lot of time with that seasoning process. A lot of times with these Africans, the names were extremely hard to pronounce for the average American, and it was changed for that reason. But all of that was a part of that seasoning process to disconnect you from that past life. Right. Um, let's see what else would be something else with that seasoning process. Um, that person could be, they could be made to follow someone else that had been on the property to kind of show them the ropes or to tell them what they should and should not do. Um, especially if this was a skilled individual, because there was definitely a hierarchy even among enslaved individuals. Okay. And, and all of that, that seasoning process would have worked different with every individual. Every individual person, depending on that person, that process would have went, went a tad bit different. Also, depending on what property you, you were on. There were really no one in walking around enforcing the laws. So people kind of did as they pleased. So even from place to place, that seasoning process could have varied. At, at the Whitney Plantation, there is the Wall of Honor, and there are the names for any of you listeners that have visited or plan to visit, uh, inscribed in stories of, of some of the slaves and who they were, where they came from. Can you talk about that? Yes, the Wall of Honor. The Wall of Honor here is a list of individuals who we know were enslaved on this property. We have, um, our head historian has tracked some of those individuals back to the various nations and tribes that they came from. Um, that wall of honor is always going to be ever evolving. Right now we have about 350 names listed on that wall, but the research is never going to stop at the Whitney. So these memorials are going to always be ever evolving. Um, I actually had a local individual come a few weeks ago and point out to me that she had done her genealogy and that one of those individuals on that wall was her direct family member. So, wow. um, yes, a lot of, a lot of great things happening at this place, this moment. But I think it's so important for memorials like that to stand because there were really no slave burial grounds. And, okay. um, right. The common practice was to dig small trenches toward the back of these properties. But a lot of times the trenches were so shallow, the animals would have partaken in it. It would have washed away with the water and the moisture. Um, but I think it's a really important thing that we find some way to commemorate these individuals and give them some kind of ending, some kind and of honor people. and identity, back, right. true identity back. Definitely. So I think that is very, very important. I really commend the Cummings family who have, in, who have embarked on this journey with this Whitney Institute, because there's so many great things that's going to come about with this place. Will you talk about the Cummings family and how it is that, that Whitney exists in its, in its state right now? 
Yes, the Cummings family are some attorneys out of New Orleans. Um, Mr. Cummings is originally from New Orleans. Mrs. Cummings is originally from Virginia. She came here by way of college and never left. Um, they're about, Mr. Cummings is about 80 years old today. His wife is close to 70. Um, she's actually still practicing law. Oh, uh, so wow. She's not on the property, right? She's not on the property as much as he is. But he, Mr. Cummings is normally here every single day unless he's out wow. of town. Wow. That's amazing. Introducing himself, it is. And to see him, to look at him at that age, to be still doing as much as he does, he comes here and he, he harvests the garden. It's whatever we need him to do, he's always there to assist. They purchased the property in 1999 after his retirement. Um, they're also real estate moguls as well. When okay. they brought the property, they really didn't have any vision for it. Simply bought it because it was for sale. Mm-hmm. With the purchase, they inherited all of this research that had been already done on the property. The Federal Writers Project, the, um, the project after the Great Depression headed up by FDR, was very heavily referenced in those documents. And Mr. Cummings decided that being a Louisiana, he just didn't know enough of this institution of slavery. And he began to educate himself and his adult children. He met a gentleman named Dr. Ibrahim Sek. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sek is from Dakar, Senegal. He has been studying Louisiana plantations for about 40 years now. But from meeting that gentleman, then came the brainchild of using that property as a teaching tool. The family began to invest in it in early 2000s. Um, it took them about 15 years. And millions of dollars, look- from what yes, I understand. Yes, definitely millions of close to $10 million over the course of those 15 years. Um, and finally, we opened up in December 8th of 2014. We opened up as a, a private-owned nonprofit. So the Cummings family are not looking to recoup any of these funds. That's amazing. They have actually they have actually established a Louisiana educational fund. And whenever that property is self-sustaining, the proceeds are going to dump into that fund. Anyone in the realm of education in the state of Louisiana is going to be to submit documentation to tap into that fund. So the ultimate goal of the Whitney plantation is to use this property as a teaching tool. Mm -hmm. How did you find the Whitney Plantation and, you know, become a guide and historian. I grew up 10 minutes from the property. Right. And I have been um, studying these plantations since the seventh grade. All started as a seventh grade social studies project that pretty wow. much never ended. <laughs> and um, my mother is a retired educator. So projects in my house were a whole nother story. And um, I really wasn't up for the task. And I decided that 13, I thought I knew everything right. So I decided that I was going to do it on this little town. And I wasn't going to have to do all of this research. I knew everything about this town. Little did I know what it would all turn into. (laughs) Right. But um, eventually I went off to college and um, I I studied communications and theater. And I have a minor in African studies. Um, Talk radio, believe it or not, was my... I believe it. My dream job. (laughs) Oh, wow. I get to live in that world here and there. So this is definitely a great treat to be with you guys today. Fantastic. But um, I simply showed up and um, I kept hearing about this place and all these great things that this gentleman, Mr. Cummings gentleman was going to be doing. 
And I showed up and introduced myself and asked them, told them some things that I knew about the property and this yeah. institution and asked, how can I be a part of this? And they contacted me about a week later and um, I put in my two weeks notice to my previous job and I've been here ever since. Um, that's, that was about three and a half years ago. But it has definitely been a journey. It's a great experience. Um, I feel like I feel like my passion and my career has finally come full circle and that I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yes. Definitely. So it's really it's really a treat to to um, be in a realm where all of this knowledge that I was seeking for personal use became so important to the masses. And I'm wondering, Adina, at what point did you discover that your family is the Oob family, that the founder, um, Ambrose Heidel, that some of his sons married Oobs, people of your family? At what point did you make that connection? Because that's quite yes, amazing. Yes, yes, That would be, that was about six, seven months ago. Oh, Dr. Sec. Dr. Sec, yeah. um, yes, Dr. Sec is, um, still, the research is never going to stop here. So we're right. always researching something. And um, when he came across that, he remembered that that was my last name. And he pulled me on the side and we had a little conversation, asked me some different things. And he shared with me that three of Ambrose's sons married ladies by the last name of Ubre from the Miralette Plantation, which is actually a part of the Whitney, because the Whitney is made up of the Miralette and the Habitat Heidel from the 1800s. Okay. And um, he shared that information with me. And now we are actually digging into that to see if we can tie that lineage and see if maybe I tie back into this very property. That is unbelievable. We are definitely, yes. We, I can't wait to find those findings. We are definitely embark- embarking on that journey right now. And I think that's going to be a pretty well-rounded story to tell. I think that individuals who come out to the Whitney property really appreciate that a lot of our guides are from this little town and have some personal connection to the property. So to be hearing that information or that story told from descendants of these individuals, I think that's a special treat for our guests that come here. Yes, it it is. It makes it come to life more than than you're already experiencing, just walking through the property and hearing the history of what happened there. Definitely. I think it's really a special touch. It is. So even speaking of your name, because I I noticed I called you Adina Oob, and that's because I know an Oob family from Louisiana, but they pronounce it Oob, and you're Oubre. Is there a difference in those two families? Probably the same family, because I normally pronounce it Oob, but if you ask my father what his name is, he's going to say James Oubre. (laughs) So I guess it's just a matter of personal preference. And what do you prefer? But I more than likely to call you by your preferred name. Oob is just fine with me. Okay. <laughs> totally okay. fine with me. But you definitely get that variation. Even among even among the family, even among my family, you get that variation of the pronouncing of those names. <laughs> Interesting. And a name is so important, especially related to what you were saying earlier, that when the slaves arrived there, they were stripped of their culture. Their, their identities, their families separated oftentimes, and then given some strange name, you know, and uh, it's just... Right. Wow. Right. Definitely. And that's also, um, since we're talking about names, with these enslaved individuals, 
the stripping of that last name that has a, we see that in the we see the results of that today when we're trying to track our genealogy. Okay. Most African Americans will come to a point where they run into a brick wall because you're now only looking at first names, and these names were recycled so much it's really hard to decipher who's who. In Puerto Rico, we call ourselves Boricua. We are proud, passionate, and full of life. On our island, adventure finds you. Strangers aren't strangers for long. The size of the audience doesn't change the beauty of the music. And we celebrate every last ray of sun. Live Boricua. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. And, and it's most, now I won't say all, but many African-Americans come to a certain point in their genealogy where they just can't get any further okay. simply because of the missing last names. Mm. I can see how that would be hard to follow once you don't find another name to link yourself to. Right. Most, most African-Americans in the continental United States today if you pose the question to them as to where in Africa or what tribe their family originated from, most of them definitely cannot tell you that. And that would be the reason why. Okay. Because of those missing last names. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that there's a segue, but I'm thinking that one of the most exciting things that I learned about on the tour with you was when you spoke about Ms. Marie, is it Azalee Hado? Yes, 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 that is correct. Can you... Can you educate our listeners about who she was? Ozzie Haydell was a lady who ran this property for 20 years. Prior to running the Habitat Haydell for 20 years, which she acquired from her husband, she had inherited her parents' estate at the age of about 15 or 16, which was very unusual. Yes. Most times the boys got the inheritance. Yes. But there was a great gap. I think it was like a decade gap between she and the rest of her siblings. And, and her parents died very early on. So she inherited the property. So she had been running a plantation and doing business in that way for a very long time. By the time she comes into reign at the Habitat Highdale. 
she, um, I look at Ozzy in so many different ways. Okay. Um, because here she was this woman amassing all of this wealth, and she was the one really running this business. Yet, I look at her as being a woman in her era as well. So here she's amassing this wealth. She's pretty much running a corporation, but yet the gentlemen around her really don't give her any respect. Mm-hmm. And I find that Azalee at times could be a very harsh lady. And um, I tend to look at her in the way that, okay, here I am building this great business, but yet my counterparts don't respect me for my work in that way. Right. And I could, I could definitely see her harshness coming out in other ways where it's really misplaced. In what ways was it there. misplaced? I definitely can see her harshness, could see her harshness coming out when dealing with the enslaved individuals. Okay. At more harsher at times, less harsher at others. And it seems to coincide with her connection with dealing with the gentlemen around her. Mm-hmm. And didn't her brother I have to do some of that. those dealings in her, her brother place and- because she was a female? Right. When her husband passes away in around 1840, um, her brother-in-law, John Jack Jr., who was also himself a very harsh individual, she now has to allow him to be the face of that business. Wow. Because in order for her to do any business dealings, in all, she couldn't physically go to the auctions herself. So she would have had to send him and allowed him to be the face of that business to take care of any of these do- doings while she was the one actually feeling all of this. Right. And running so everything day see, to day. Right. So I can definitely see where she could have felt some type of way having to move in that manner, being that she was the one really running the business. And is it true that she did have, she did change some of the things when she came into power around how the enslaved individuals on the property were treated that she did add an additional meal and did was it give them a day off that she softened some of what their life experience was? Am I remembering that correctly or not? What she did with the, yes, with the meals, she definitely came in and did something a tad bit unusual with the meals. She is pretty much sick of replacing slave quarters Mm -hmm. and being a firefighter. So she wanted to cut down on the amount of cooking that was happening in slave quarters. So what she did, she took on another cook. And she now has the cooks providing three meals a day for the enslaved individuals. And that wasn't happening before. That was before. very, ver- that was very, very out of character. Her neighbors a probably looked at her like she was crazy. Definitely. Wow. Her neighbors probably looked at her like she was a bit insane for doing that. But she was a true businesswoman. And in that sense, she did things according to her bottom line, whether it was the norm or the thing to do. If it, if it adjusted her numbers and made things happen, the outcome be the way she wanted it, she made the adjustment. With the, the, um, the off day, that would be something done under French rule. Under okay. French rule, enslaved individuals were given Sundays off. So that would have just been under the French rule itself. But she definitely came in and, and revamped that kitchen. Um, and when I look at, when I study this, um, I, I study it in so many different manners. 
and you think we care about what our neighbors think today, mm-hmm. times it by about 10,000. In, in what ways? Trans- <laughs> People really were concerned with what their neighbors thought about them. Um, for instance, house slaves. House slaves were, house slaves kind of told the wealth of that family. Okay. How well, how well presented your house slaves were kind of is how individuals looked at your stature or your, your level of wealth. So when you look at um, her, her bringing this cooking and having this cook providing meals for the enslaved individuals, the neighbors probably thought, wow, that's a problem. Because if the enslaved individuals on her property were to share that with the enslaved individuals on neighboring property, that could cause an uprising or that could cause Uh, some, yes, that could cause some friction. So most times when individuals did things in a different manner on their property, they tried to keep that confined to the property Mm -hmm. rather than rub it in the neighbor's faces. Even with the, um, when you talk about with with this institution, you're talking about people. So you're going to have the good, the bad, and a little bit of everything in between. Right. The individuals who who chose to, because there were definitely good people, just like today. You have the good and the bad. Right. So the individuals at that time who chose to do things in a different manner on their properties, they normally tried to keep that confined to their property. To their property. Because they didn't want, they didn't want, right. They didn't want the neighbors to feel that they were trying to force their hand in a certain manner because I choose to do this on my property in this manner. Mm -hmm. And you definitely, I definitely find a lot of that when I study this place. I found one gentleman, um, he was, what is his name? He was in a a slave owner in St. Martin's Parish. St. Martin's Parish is not very far from where the Whitney Plantation sits. But that particular slave owner decided that he was not going to chastise his slaves in the manner of physical chastisement of whippings and lashings. Okay. And he not only, he not only held to that on his property, but everyone in that parish, they knew if you ran across one of that particular gentleman's people, you had mind, you had better mind your manners as to how you interacted with that person, because not only on his property, but he was going to stand firm and stand by his individuals that they should not be chastised in a certain manner. How did that that affect? Not. How did they affect? How did that affect what was happening on the property then? To not be abused in that in that way anymore. I would think that the um, the living conditions on that property were much much better than any other property in that, in that region, in that area. Um, he, um, his people were extremely loyal to him. I bet, yeah. Um, most all of his, and most all of those individuals, when they were emancipated, most all of those people stayed. That's what I wanted to ask you as well. At, at some point to talk about when, when they were emancipated, what happened on the properties? Because that was pretty. When emancipation happens, um, it's gonna it's actually gonna be years later after the Emancipation Proclamation. 
Um, if it isn't until individuals begin to actually physically go on these properties, stake the American flag and announce that freedom had come. Mm. So it's going to be a couple of years before all of the slaves know that they can even, they can even leave these properties. That's unbelievable. Wow. That That's where if you've know. heard of the, if you've heard of the Juneteenth celebration. Yes. That's where that Juneteenth celebration comes in at. Because they chose the la- the 19th because no one knew the exact date. And since that was the last team, they decided that they were going to do a Juneteenth celebration to celebrate the enslaved, know- the enslaved individuals knowing that freedom had come. Wow. And that's what be- that would be where that Juneteenth celebration is rooted in. You know, and so you talked to us also about um, though the enslaved people were emancipated and could stay on the property, which I'm hearing most of them did, weren't they charged in ways that made it impossible for them to ever better their situations? Under the sharecropping system. Yes, yes. The sharecropping system was a system where, and not only, not only freed slaves, but anyone who found themselves in a poor condition was subjected to the sharecropping, no matter race, religion, creed, ethnicity. Anyone who found themselves in a poor condition could have been subjected to sharecropping. Um, these individuals are going to enter into these agreements with these property owners to be leased a piece of land to tend to, to be leased a slave quarter to live in. Everything that they need to sustain themselves they're to get at the sharecropping store at the property where they sharecropped. Mm-hmm. A sharecropping store was nothing but a general store with everyday items. And they kept a tally of what those individuals owed. They were called scripts. We're mainly talking about a group of illiterate individuals. So the documentation, the numbers were so inflated to where no matter how good their harvest was, they almost never received any monetary value. Gosh. And a lot of them at that point, because remember they had chosen to go into these agreements. They had chosen to be there. So a lot of them are going to start leaving at that point. And then these old laws that are sitting on the law books that have really, haven't really been being enforced are going to start being reinforced. The cold noir laws. What are One of those laws, they're, they're commonly called the black codes. Okay. But there are a list of old laws that were used to kind of control slaves. And one of those laws stated that you could not leave a man's property with a debt. Right. And that debt was also transferable. To, so to the children and died, family. Right. So if someone died, whoever was the closest person to that individual on that property, their debt became that person's debt. And you now had a whole nother generation of forced free labor. Yeah. In the early 60s is when all of this machinery is going to start being invented. And that's what's going to break down these sharecropping systems. When, these, when they're going to go to, um, to mechanized systems. Okay. All of this human labor isn't really needed to tend to these fields. They're going to go to the machinery at that point. A couple of years later, they're going to stop even granulating the sugar at these properties these properties are going to start outsourcing the sugarcane crop to the sugar refineries. That are along the Mississippi River, like down here in New Orleans. Even. Right. Okay. Right. 
what else is important to share about the history of Whitney and the people that inhabited it? We have a few more minutes. I'm just so engrossed in what you're saying. The Whitney property is always going to be ever evolving. The research is never going to stop here. So we're always going to be reaching to find these individuals who were subjected to this and commemorate them. Um, What I think is super important about the Whitney property is we are a, we are a people place. We are very, very concerned with the individuals who come out to see us, what you guys think, how we can do better to get this information out. Um, We are actually working on the entire school curriculum to present to the Louisiana um, state board. We're doing it in their format so that we can get as less pushback as possible because you would at least think, if not anyone, at least the individuals, the children who are surrounded by this daily, that that they're being opened up to this, that they're being taught that, but it's just not happening. So Mm -hmm. we're taking upon ourselves to create an entire curriculum to try and help assist in that manner. We want to be a part of the solution, not add to the problem. And we think that is a great thing that we're opening up this conversation here. Because I think a lot of people just don't know how to approach it. I commend Germany and how they have owned up to how their government has owned up to the Holocaust. They've acknowledged it. And that country has moved forward. Right. I think our government, our right, I think if our government and our powers that be would acknowledge that this atrocity happened, we as everyday people could move past it. Could right. move forward with some healing. So I to hope happen. that the yes, I hope that the Whitney causes that shift. Yeah, I think so acknowledgement that we can look at it in that manner. Acknowledgement is the first stage in being able to heal, being seen. You know that what happened to you was real, and it did happen. Right, definitely, definitely. And I think that I think the Whitney is going to be a, a great asset in opening up that line of communication. Because we're and definitely just, not here to place ba- blame or that right. is definitely not the ultimate goal. The goal is simply to acknowledge that these individuals built the world. Yeah, the Whitney stands as an institution of education and a memorial to, to what happened. Definitely, definitely. And that is definitely our ultimate goal with this property, to be a teaching tool to the masses. And I know there's going to be an entire, just to put a tip, there's going to be an entire research center on the Whitney property, a place for, we're going to provide a space for brilliant minds to come in and tap into one another. And maybe by having a space for that, we can get us a think tank that's going to help to solve some of our issues that we have going on in today's world. And even just the, the history you have, the like from continuing the Federal Writers Project into the research you all are doing now, just it, it will be a, a database, you know, that is definitely for, for researchers to come and study and, and write and continue to educate. Definitely. We're going to offer housing to college students who are studying some type of history and it needs to be put up. It's so many great things that's going to come about Wonderful. with that Whitney property. Definitely. Well, I know, Adina, that you're going to come on this show again in the near future to speak about some of these issues at a more personal level and and how the issues that started in slavery still exist in our culture today. And so we're going to schedule that. 
And I wondered what is important for you, what you would like to leave in your work as your legacy or, or what's important for you to be known for? That would be something I say all the time. Be the change that you want to see. If you see a need for something or if you were lacking in something, be that for someone else. Be the change that you want to see. Create the change that you want to see. Mm-hmm. And that, would def- that, that definitely would have to be what I would like to, the, what I, the impression I would like to leave on the Whitney and on everyone I come in contact at the Whitney. Um, slavery has been going on since the beginning of time. It's still happening today. It only evolves from one group to the next. So if you're ever in a position where you see something that you know is not right, even if you can't do anything about it, say it, acknowledge it, that it's not okay. Because it may not be you today, but it can definitely be you tomorrow. That's beautiful. And that's what you're going to come back on and talk about. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you for being my guest today. I have been today with you. You are so welcome. It's been such an honor and privilege. And the website and it has for- definitely been my honor. Thank you. And I want to give the website for the Whitney. It is WhitneyPlantation.com, where listeners can learn more about this piece of our American history. And be in touch with you as well. Is that a good way to reach you? Or is that there is a definitely a good way to contact me. Through WhitneyPlantation.com. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Adina. And thank you so much, Ms. Lisa. Thank you for your time and thank you for addressing this as well. You're so welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Look forward to seeing you again. Bye-bye. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) That concludes our show for today. Join me next week as we meet again and I bring you another guest. Take care and Happy New Year. Listening to All Things Therapy with Lisa Tahir, only on LA Talk Radio. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.